I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the future of storytelling. Welcome back to the FOSS podcast. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the relationship between culture and politics. And here to join me is musician, filmmaker, social entrepreneur, and Durham, North Carolina City Councilman, Pierce Freeland. For Pierce, art is activism, and activism is art. That belief is embodied in his Emmy Award-winning PBS web series, Beat Making Lab, where he traveled around the world with a musical studio that would fit in a backpack, visiting different countries and engaging in cultural exchange through hip-hop music. Alongside Pierce's academic work at UNC Chapel Hill, Beat Making Lab served as an inspiration for the creation of Next Level, a collaboration between UNC and the US Department of State that leveraged American hip-hop culture as a means of foreign diplomacy. The twin narrative of art and politics has continued to define Pierce's professional trajectory. In 2013, he founded Blackspace, a digital makerspace located in Durham and Chapel Hill that provides free music, film, coding, and storytelling workshops to youth of African descent. Meanwhile, he continued to lecture at UNC and made several runs for political office, which culminated with his appointment to Durham City Council in 2020. Pierce Freeland serves as an inspiration for all of us who believe that art storytelling, and civic engagement can lead our world to a brighter future. And it's my pleasure to welcome him to the Future of Storytelling podcast. Pierce Freeland, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. So you've talked about this West African philosophy, Sankofa, this idea that you have to look back in order to be able to look forward. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. I guess I could start with some ancestors. I'll name my great-grandfather, Alan Freeland, who was a painter during the Harlem Renaissance. And my dad uh, recalls being taken out um, into the woods with him to just sit and listen and just perceive his environment. I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to take me out into the natural environment just to listen and to be present uh, with my thoughts, emotions, and, and the world around me and to, and to absorb kind of the beauty of our universe. You know, my dad was also an artist. He was a photographer and an architect. When did you realize that you were going to be an artist or that that was part of who you are? Um, I think that art was always around me from a very young age. My mother, I didn't mention her yet, but Nina Freeland, she's a jazz vocalist. And I remember when my mom started singing and bringing us to gigs, you know, we used to hang out with her backstage. And I did see in my mother and my father uh, a loving, nurturing parent who was also taking care of themselves who unapologetically and fearlessly stepped into their purpose. So for me, when when I became, as I was coming of age and thinking about what I wanted to do, I never had to question like, oh, you know, get a real job or, (laughs) you know, those are some of the questions they had to deal with. I never dealt with. They always said, follow your passion. Hearing about your parents and the maturity or just love and and, uh, what amazing people they clearly were, makes me understand a little more about your focus on parenting, prioritizing that in your life. Uh, I know you've even done an album and I've watched a few videos. 
about dad's day with, with your daughter. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. I, I wasn't thinking I was going to go there, but just hearing you talk about your parents makes me want to hear you talk about your parenting. Uh, you know, my dad passed away last summer. Um, well, summer of 2019, uh, was two summers ago now. I took a big shift from parenting my kids to almost parenting my dad during that time. You know, I got to spend this real intimate time with my dad, you know, towards the end of his life. And it was such a gift to be able to offer him that. And what I found pretty much every time I went into the studio from like 2018 to 2020, I was writing about being a father. And I think I was, you know, subconsciously tapping into missing my dad and his physical form as he transitioned. Uh, I was missing having him be the presence that he was for me as a child, but I was also celebrating what the gifts that he gave me and seeing his fatherhood practice and how I rock with my children. Yeah, daddy-daughter day, girl, what up? what up? Right now, we can go anywhere you want up. Yeah. Roller skating ring to the movies, chilling at the house. Maybe later on, we could go get a banana flow. Mm. Yeah. Cause that's really tasty We can be lazy Stop and smell the daisies Do what you want Me and you in the car Go play in the arcade Or shop at the mall That's where the album D.A.D. came from It was it was literally Sankofa I was in the middle Like losing my father And, and, and loving my children and, and fatherhood was just Really an important part Of that story I'm going through a similar thing With my dad now so, um, so music is a source of, of healing, arts is a source of joy and, and coming back into yourself. But I'm also curious about how you've used it to uh, go outward, how you see it as a tool for uh, making a difference more broadly in the world. Yeah. Well, Charlie, before, before we jump off, um, I just want to acknowledge that I feel some emotion swelling in you and, and can only imagine what, uh, you know, from the little I know about you as a storyteller, how it may be impacting you to hear my journey. Here's the thing about grieving. It's a reflection of the love that we have for our fathers, that we feel the weight of their loss. It's a cycle just like the seasons. And one day we too will be in our winter seasons. And whew, what a privilege it would be, I imagined, as I was caring for my dad, my son, you know, watching after me in that way. And it's, it's really beautiful. It, it took me a while to really sink my teeth into being gracious about that process. Yeah, I feel you. Thank you. Whew. Okay, well, I think you should just take over this interview. You're doing a better job. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about, I think your sort of first big breakthrough was Beat Making Lab. That was certainly how you came to Faust. You, you sort of helped lead one of those. Um, but maybe just tell, tell our listeners quickly what that is and the kind of impact it had. So I'm a professor, young lecturer, not even professor. I don't, you know, uh, got my master's and I'm teaching at my alma mater. This department at this prestigious university that gave me my papers and my legitimacy is woefully lacking when it comes to presenting a music curriculum that reflects the times. 
And I know from my study that this was also the case when jazz became a disruptor in the academy. There was a time when uh, Duke Ellington was invited onto campus at Oxford and they were like, we do classical here. You know, we have a pedagogy here. This doesn't quite fit the model. You know, somebody had to break that whole model up and say, no, jazz belongs here. And hip hop belongs here, too. That was our case, certainly. But it also caught the attention of the State Department, who said, wow, here we have hip hop, the global culture. One of the biggest cultural exports of this country is our culture. And guess what? Hip hop, dance, graffiti, b-boying, you know, emceeing can travel some places that diplomats can't go and can connect with some audiences that want nothing to do with the United States politically, but are culturally aligned with the black youth culture of this country. So from Beat Making Lab, next thing was doing the black space. Tell our listener what that is. Yeah, Black Space is a digital makerspace. We work with youth between the ages of like 12 and 20, uh, and we teach them things, digital, virtual, technological things, uh, music production, coding, 3D printing. We did one on a uh, workshop with middle school age girls on cryptocurrency and cybersecurity, working with kids of African descent, trying to both uh, bridge the digital divide and make sure that black folks have a space and to give us tools to radically imagine and manifest the futures that we deserve. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a digital maker space rooted in Afrofuturism, which is this idea of uh, kind of black futurists creating the world that we want for ourselves. This also seems like a perfect transition to talk a little bit about the history of white people in America. Give me a little background on that project. It's, by the way, I just want to say beautiful and powerful and really, really well done and super enjoyed. We'll, we'll make links to all these things we talk about uh, because we want anyone who's listening to be able to check them all out. But yeah, history of white people in America. Skin color didn't make a difference. No matter what hue your flesh was tinted in because your complexion wasn't kinship and pigment was insignificant. It didn't prevent you from certain privileges. This is the story of how skin became color. Color became race and race became power. The creation of the Caucasian, white Aryan. It's the story of how white became American. Let's just sit with that title for a second. <laughs> yeah. You know, there is nothing more troubling after watching a few episodes of History of White People in America than just kind of reflecting on the inherent solidarity between poor Southern white and black communities. They have so much alignment and we'll get into it more as the series progresses. We've, we've finished three episodes of 16 and uh, I can't wait to talk about Wilmington, North Carolina and the, the ways in which poor black and white folks came together to, to build a fusion government, but whiteness just got in the way of it. White supremacy got in the way of it. You know, the natural allies become enemies through the prism of white supremacy. This is that story. History of white people in America tells that story through hip-hop. I mean, honestly, it was the best thing I've watched you know, since going to Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, that's kind wow. of how I felt. Like, this is so beautifully told, so powerfully told, such creative storytelling. And like the form and the content were so perfect together. I'm glad that it resonated. Our goal is to 
is to keep episodes around four to five minutes. That's a storytelling tool to be told in a way, you know, with music where it kind of sticks in your head and, and is able to be absorbed emotionally through this universal language language that we talked about. But then also the, the module of, of animated, that's the other piece, animation. My hope is that, you know, people can, it's a soft entry point to, to what I hope will become a deep dive or a rabbit hole into deeper conversations about these topics around race. But, you know, we got to get started somewhere. And music and animation are two versatile universal mediums for truth-telling and storytelling. So you've, you've worked with these two art forms of music and visual storytelling to create this very emotional history lesson in a form that's so current, you know, that's so digestible for today. So talking about the role of artists for social change, and just historically artists have always been kind of at the vanguard of of change. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to go into politics. Well, when you said artists are at the vanguard of social change, I just, I think about that all the time. In the Black freedom struggle, art has always been a tool for us. It's, it's been emancipatory. It's been functional. In addition to being kind of beautiful and entertaining, a couple of examples would be like uh, Harriet Tubman, who I consider to be like the quintessential Afrofuturist in being able to name the future that she wanted and then create it. You know, she used Negro spirituals for emancipatory ends as coded language to give people instructions on how to escape slavery. Billie Holiday used her music and her platform as a jazz artist through songs like Strange Fruit to make a compelling case that accompanied Ida B. Wells' important work to end lynching in the South. Ida B. Wells was a journalist. Billie Holiday was a jazz vocalist. They were both activists. They were both organizers. They were both involved in changing not just the politic, but the lived realities of Black folks living in the South. And I don't think you do that without both of them. You need Ida B. Wells. You need Billie Holiday. You need Emmett, Emmett Till's mother. And you need Jet Magazine. You need all of these things to end lynching. So moving forward... Marvin Gaye, what's going on? You know, uh, KRS-One, stop the violence. Like, artists, if Aretha Franklin, respect. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Queen Latifah, U-N-I-T-Y, Lauren Hill. Everyone I love listening to, they don't just make songs. They, they, they shift realities through their music and their labor. And it's not just, it's a vibration. They're putting vibrations out in the universe that are reshaping reality. So for me, that doesn't stop with music. There's other things that I do to manifest the worlds that we deserve. And a lot of that is subsumed in the, in the cultural movement work uh, you know, rooted in radical black feminism. For me, that's my politic and practice and the folks that I learned from and studied under. I have certain privileges that allow me access to spaces that some of my more radical friends can't get into. I have a little more access to these spaces 
and an obligation to be in those spaces and to show up for our people because we need infiltrators too. You can't just stage the rebellion without inside information about, you know, the overseer's work schedule and, you know, do what you need to do to get free. You need somebody on the inside. So not everyone has access to the inside. So so for those of us that do, some of us got to say, all right, I'll do it. Like, come on, let's go. Like, it's a service. It's a sacrifice to infiltrate systems of white supremacy on behalf of your people uh, to be a voice so they can have a seat at the table. It's a labor. It's one that I found myself uniquely poised to fill in a way that could radically change the game. And that's what I'm doing. And so that's the thought behind running for office. Uh, I know you've run a couple of times for different offices and you're currently on uh, city council. Is that right? Yep. It sounds to me like you actually believe that being in office or public service like that is is a role similar to what an artist can do uh, in terms of being able to imagine and realize the future that you want to live in. Harken back to the role music has played in various political movements. And, and you know, one that, that particularly sticks out, I'll mention it again, is the anti-lynching movement. That was a movement because people were being lynched throughout the South by the thousands. And it, we needed a political movement to end that state terrorism in the same way, it really mirrors what we're seeing today with the murders of black men and the movement for black lives. It's not just an outcry is not going to suffice to end the disproportionate attack on, on black lives. You need a movement. That movement needs a soundtrack. That movement needs political infiltrators. That movement needs... Uh, grassroots organizers and movement workers. It needs political appointees and, and actors and gatekeepers that understand the depth of what the issue is and the source of the solution, which is in the folks closest to the pain. Yeah, that, that, that's something that's really missing in politics local, state, national. And so that's something that I hope to, again, planting seeds. Every move we make has ripple effects and they're fractal in nature. That's something I learned from my dad. He used to show me this film. Go Google it right now. It's called The Powers of Ten. Starts with a young couple on a blanket and it zooms out and in and it shows that what is the, the nature of the universe at its smallest unit is the same as the universe as its biggest unit. An atom looks a lot like a galaxy, looks a lot like a solar system, looks a lot like us and our planet. There's just this fractal relationship to the universe. So, you know, that knowledge of the nature tells me that we can do things in Durham that will have fractal implications on a state, national, international scale. And planting that seed, it may take a while to bear fruit, but you got to start with building a, a, a movement and sustaining it. Um, and that's how change happens. That helps me understand your focus also on, on local, right? A lot of what you're doing is 
geared towards Durham and and Chapel Hill in North Carolina. And I mean, there's that old adage that um, all politics is local, but it's not just politics here. It's it's change and innovation and and movement building. This is a good segue too to to some Sankofa stuff. Look back. Now, my parents always told me, follow your purpose. So I never had a problem deciding. My problems and decisions were always in abundance. Do I go to grad school or do I pursue music full time? There's really no wrong answer. I've always been in the toughest decisions are between two things that I want, but I'm not quite sure, you know, which one is the right one that's aligned with my path. So Beatmaking Lab, I remember I was in, we were in Dominican Republic. We had just done a, a beat making program there and Maya Angelou passed away. And I had done an interview with her a couple years prior. I went back and listened to it. It was called A Pledge to Our Youth. She said, she said a poem during our interview, A Pledge to Our Youth, where she talks about all the things we need to provide for our kids. Clean and well-furnished schools, safe and non-threatening streets, employment which makes use of our talents but does not degrade employment, our Employment which makes use of your talents but does not degrade your dignity. You're the best we have. You are all we have. You are what we have become. We pledge you our whole hearts from this day forward. I am Maya Antelope and I stand by that pledge. Those things became my political platform, by the way. But that's a story for three years later. I love that a, a, a poem is the basis for the platform. I love that. <laughs> and so anyway, I, I did an observation. I looked around myself. Dad, out in the woods, sit, be present with your feelings and your grieving. Look around. What, what are you doing? To what extent are you fulfilling the charge Maya left you? I'm talking about building college graduates, building abundant communities, building sustainable systems. Beautiful. Is there anything that we should talk about that I didn't think to ask you or that you was on your mind to share? I have one thought. I feel like we're also developing a relationship, so I'll, I'll offer you this, Charlie. When we did our call with the, uh, what was it? We did the call with the Take Us to a Better Place book. Yep. You talked about how... Well, actually, could you explain it? I think you'll do a better job about how the fire releases the seed. Oh, yeah. In a, yeah, well, yeah. just that idea that there, there are certain trees whose um, pine cones are so dense that the seeds only uh, drop and open when there's a very intense forest fire. And so even while the fire is raging, the seeds are being planted to, for the next generation of growth. And I was using that as a metaphor for this terrible period of the pandemic where we're suffering as a, as a globe with, with what feels like a terrible plague, is a terrible plague, but that there will be seeds that are planted in this period that will bring about some new kind of beauty, a new kind of beautiful forest after. Yes, so I feel like with our fathers, we are our brothers on either side of this pandemic. I had my own personal pandemic and forest fire in my dad's transition prior to COVID. You're dealing with yours now, which I'm sure is complicated by COVID. And it was also a raging inferno of sorts. And I was the pine cone, not realizing at the time what seeds that process was planting 
and and when my dad transitioned and that and that fire of his physical presence went out so much is there in the wake of that of that beautiful raging inferno it's not destructive it's well it is destructive it's destroying the physical but it's also planting seeds for future growth thank god it happens cuz if it didn't we wouldn't be here we wouldn't have the seeds of life that make our existence here so abundant and diverse i just want to end maybe perhaps with that meditation on the relationship between destruction and creation uh between life and death between you know burning and birthing well i'd like to end it by thanking phil and nina freeland for the beautiful work they did in bringing you into the world and uh and with a little prayer for for both of our next generations and what mm-hmm. we can the seeds we will plant in them and the work that they will do and just this beautiful cycle thank you my friend this has been a real pleasure and honor to sit here and have a heart to heart chat with you so and hopefully just one of many to come i look forward to more My sincerest thanks to Pierce Freeland for joining me on today's episode. You can learn more about Pierce and find links to all the projects we discussed in our conversation by visiting this episode's page on the Future of Storytelling website at fost.org or by following the link in the episode's description. Thank you for listening to the Future of Storytelling podcast, produced in partnership with our talented friends at Charts and Leisure. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to our show, give it a review, and share it with a friend. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please stay safe, be strong, and story on.